This reading's from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Thanks. So this is the, the fourth in a series, uh, and there are five, uh, that we're having on the subject of open-hearted living. And if, and if you've missed the other ones, I know you, you'll regret having missed them. Uh, you can actually find them on the, uh, on the website, or you can uh, go to the podcast just to, to catch up, just to make sure you're there. But it's the, the fourth of it. And um, just to give you a quick recap, in the first we looked at the whole idea of being true to ourselves. Uh, in order to do that, we have to to drop down out of our minds and into our hearts. And as a result of that, as a result of dropping down into our hearts, we live in that open-hearted loving uh, that we talked about in the second week. Um, The result of not being attached to what our minds tell us is that if we're not attached to our minds, then our hearts miraculously uh, begin to open. And the result of that is that our relationships change. Uh, We don't react or lash out in the same way. You know, the purpose of the mind is to survive. And if we're not surviving, and, you know, we're in a privileged position here where we don't have to fight off people or, you know, get food by killing things. You know, we can just go to the supermarket. So we're we're in a place where survival is a different Maslow's hierarchy of needs have basically been met. And if we're not surviving, we're living and loving as a part of of the flow of the universe, which is what we talked about last week. And we're able to create, hopefully, loving, non-judgmental, free relationships. But who manages to do that all the time? You know, basically none of us. And I was writing all this stuff. And I got to this point, I thought, well, come on, you know. We're all going to fail at this most of the time. So it's very important we actually address that, that aspect. And I love that reading Uh, I mean, Paul gets a bad press uh, a lot of the time, but really, that is such a great description 
of someone who has really experienced, you know, the whole traditional enlightenment stuff and is really there and yet completely admits to his weakness in that situation. You know, I was given a thorn in my flesh that you know, are three times through to be taken away. No one knows what that was. But basically, he's been asked to live with it. And we're all asked to live to some extent with that. We all have those things that we think, oh, why me? You know, why did I have to invest in that? Why, why do I get the diagnosis? You know, why? We have that why me. And, and there is the aspect of our, our weakness that we have. And Paul says, you know, I boast in my weakness. You know, he, he's putting that perspective that it's not necessarily a bad thing. We are continually confronted with our failure. And he said to me, I hope you're not going to do a, you know, living up to your potential type talk here. No, I'm not going to do that. You know, but we are continually living up, uh, confronted with our failure. We fail to live up to our spiritual standards. I do every day. You know, we fail to live up to the standards we set ourselves in relationships. We fail to live up to the standards that those around us set of us. You know, people around us say, well, he shouldn't be doing that. You know, he, you know, he should be all right. But we fail to, to live up to that. And most of the time, therefore, we experience that, that state of failure. Now, there are loads of books. You know, you can read tons of books, cliches, uh, about falling down and getting up again, all these failure things. That there, about failure being the road to success. And the best I've heard there, I mean, they're all good, these things. You'll find one on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, the best one, I think, is Richard Raw, who says that a man over 40 has nothing to learn from success. Which I think is such a great thought. You know, a man over 40 has nothing to learn from success. All his learning comes from his failures. But I don't find all the, the, the cliches and sort of bon mots about failure particularly helpful on a day-to-day basis. They give us a context as to how we could include our failure and move forward, but no clue really to, to what, is, what it's essentially about. One thing that's always helped me in this is... Uh, something that Thomas Keating once said. He maintained that in meditation, the practice was not the staying with the breath. The practice is not the staying with the breath, or whatever you stay with, the candle, whatever. But the practice was coming back to the breath once your mind had drifted off. Your practice is coming back. In other words... Every time you came back to the breath, you were not failing in the practice, but you were actually doing the practice. What we saw as failing, he turned into the actual practice itself. In other words, the failure, supposedly, was the practice. The coming back to the breath was the practice. Again, I think failure is an interesting word. It comes from the French fallier. In, and, and that in actually means in the sense of non-occurrence or the cessation of supply. Non-occurrence or the cessation of supply. That, that's what the essential entomology of the root word means. It's, it's, it's the cessation of supply. And failure is not, therefore, the antithesis of success. Rather... Failure is the absence of something. Interestingly enough, success comes from the Latin word succedere, 
and which means to come close after. And we get the word to succeed in that the king succeeds his father. That sort of succession is where the root of the word success comes from. So success actually is about arriving, about coming close to our expectations of what we wanted to have happen. So when we say we succeeded, it's really the thought that we had there about what might happen has actually come close to that. So it is the arrival of the thought. It is is the, the next thing that happens. And if you want something to happen, if that thing happens, that is the next thing to happen. Failure is something not happening. And that, that's quite interesting because you, you, it is not an overall thing, you know, you are a failure. There's just something that is, in our experience, has not happened. So when we look at that in terms of our relationships or our ability to succeed or, or live up to what we aspire to, it is simply that we haven't put in place what we wanted to put in place. We haven't put something in place. There is something to be put in place. Which is how Thomas Merton's idea of practice being coming back to the breath is so helpful. It defines what we need to do and what we must put in place, which is our attention to the breath. So there is no failure in that practice. Because you're always remembering what you need to put in place and your mind drifting away is the failure, but it is simply something that's not being put in place, and therefore you do the practice, which is to put it in place. So that really gives us the idea that failure is really an absence that we're noticing. Failure is an absence that we're noticing, and actually, you know, we can decide to fill that absence. The only thing we need to do about not living up to our standards... The only thing we need to do about it is notice it. That is the key action, to notice it when we don't live up to our standards, and then to return to our standards. It is the noticing that's important, because the way we live life is not all about success and failure in traditional terms. You know... You can say that a relationship failed if it breaks up. But in reality, it is what it is. It has a certain quality about it. And that's all you can say. To say more than that it has a certain quality about it is to impose a judgment on it. And the failure there, you know, there... And the failure in imposing judgment on it is an, as, is an absence of the heart. When you impose judgment on something, there is an absence of the heart. It is the mind that's judging, and therefore we're not in our hearts which accepts. I had someone who was once asked what the secret of a long marriage was, and she said, not getting divorced. <laughs> I thought that was so good. <laughs> The secret of a long marriage is not getting divorced. Whether it's in relationships or our behaviour or our achievements or lack of them, most of us live in that state of not living up to. We feel that we've not lived up to our potential 
and that life's short. And you know that can be very depressing to think that you you know that there is you know that you're failing. But that sense of failure or non-achievement, you know, that can hang over us. And it does. You have to you know, life isn't all you know, just amazing all the time. You know, we do all this spiritual stuff here, but actually you've got to address the fact, the experience that we have, I have it too a lot of the time, is of not living up to it. Not living up to that. You know, we can feel it in our family. We can feel it in our career, in our wealth, in our health, even in the way that the country or the world is going. A sense of things not going the way that they should. And, you know, we all deal with that in our own way. We might decide to just to suck it up and contain the feelings or blame others or even self-medicate in various ways. We might even go to the doctor to help uh, get there. And that sense of failure or non-achievement, you know, that can also be a driver to action. You know, the need to succeed in order not to fail or to prove to others that we're not failing, or to make up for the perceived failure of those near us, or to compete with, our, with their perceived success. There can be lots of drivers there. You know, we want to succeed in our lives. And when we find that we don't measure up, there are both consequences and feelings. So the first thing I want to say about that, really, is that it's all in the mind. That all the measuring, comparing and working out, you know, it's all a product of the mind. And it's all dealt with by not going there. But instead by dropping down into our heart, which we've talked about, which produces the capacity for love. And you know, that really is the first and last of it. You know, that, that is the all of it. But of course, I'm speaking to the mind now. And the mind is not ready, readily satisfied with such a pat and, and ready answer to problems. You know, the mind always wants more. And, you know, that's part of the problem. But for the sake of your peace of mind, you know, let's, let's give you a little bit more on that. Because, yes, the truth is that it's all dealt with by dropping down into our hearts. But, you know, what else can we say about it? Well, very, you know, first of all, the very fact that we're comparing our lives to the standards that others have, you know, obviously has a dubious benefit. You know, we have to remember that each one of us is completely unique. That we have our own circumstances and challenges that we've been given and born into. And that our only job, as I said in that first week, is to be true to that. That wonderful quote, which I'm going to repeat again from Thomas Merton, God utters me like a word containing a partial thought of himself. God utters me like a word, containing a partial thought of himself. A word will never be able to comprehend the voice that utters it. But if I'm true to the concept that God utters in me, if I'm true to the thought of him that I'm meant to embody, I shall be full of his actuality and find him everywhere in myself and find myself nowhere. I shall be lost in him. That is, I shall find myself. I shall be saved. So we've got to be true to the concept that God utters in us. You know, there's no comparison there. It doesn't say you have to be able to dance like Mick Jagger. Or to make money like Jeff Bezos. 
or to love like Mother Teresa. It doesn't say you have to do all that. It says that you just have to be true to the concept that God utters in you, and that's all. And some of us, for some of us, that means just living the way we live and not worrying about the effect that we have. Now, you know, what do you think that Van Gogh, why he's on the front cover, Emily Dickinson, Franz Kafka, Galileo, and Keats have in common? They were all only recognised for their greatness after their death. They struggled all their lives to be that concept that God uttered in them. And in the end, no one said, wow, Vincent, that's great. No one said, and Emily Dickinson, you know, look at her, lived in a cupboard most of her life, you know, just on her own. But after their deaths, boom. Look at Van Gogh now. I mean, any painting of his, millions and millions of dollars. He he couldn't raise enough money to buy tobacco when he was alive. You never know the effect that you're having or you're going to have. You never know the effect your children are going to have. You never know the effect that you're going to have on somebody who's going to have a big effect. You just don't know. And you probably never will know. But you've just got to have the confidence to be able to be that word that God utters in you and to know that somehow that's okay and not judge ourselves, which we spend our lives doing. Our purpose is to live our lives. And by doing that, by living our lives in that way, we create meaning that is immeasurably greater than someone else's life because it's you, it is Ed, living Ed's life. And that's what creates meaning. It is in the way we deal with the circumstances that life throws at us. This is the key thing. It is the way in dealing with the circumstances that life throws at us and our readiness to learn from them that we have our true impact on life. Our our willingness to learn from that. And then there's the way we actually apply that, you know, on a day-to-day basis in living. We often feel that we fail just in the way that we relate. You know, I fly off the handle at my son and daughter, you know, all the time. (laughs) And they look at me and they go, (laughs) you know, we all do that. Not living up to what we think we should be doing. I should be guru-like, wandering around the house, you know, and they're all just getting the presents. But no, I have to go, why do you do that? (laughs) You know, Dad, stop shouting at me. You know, all of us are the same. All of us are the same. You know, we all feel that we fail in the way that we're in, not living up to the way that we should be doing. I love it. You know, again, I'm going to use those lovely words from the general confession. We don't have that much in the Aspen Chapel. But in the general confession, we have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. Miserable offenders. That's the next line. <laughs> you know, I, I should be, you know, but you know, we do feel that. You don't have to have me or a priest. Everyone knows that, you know. The truth is, we're not in control of our every move. And as Thomas Keating said, the practice is coming back to our breath. It's noticing it. In that way, the practice when we flaff the handle is to recognise that we've done it, and to take responsibility for it by noting what happened. And remembering next time not to repeat the event. 
And we can do that. You know, if you decide you're going to do that. Or you can just fly off the handle all the time, which is, you know, if you're unconscious, you just do that. But, you, you know, there is the possibility of noticing. We're asked to respond in an open-hearted way rather than blaming others for our reaction. And we blame others. It's your fault. You left your room untidy. I, I wouldn't have to say this if you did. You know, I mean, you know. We blame others. The definition of failure is useful here. The non-occurrence or the cessation of supply. It is simply that where there should have been love, there was a reaction. Where there should have been love, there was a reaction or blame or an accusation or a complaint. Something was missing. And what was missing was love. Now I know, you know, this all can sound sanctimonious and idealistic, but actually it is the reality of the situation. And the situation of most troubles and failures in the world is a lack of love. Even in the field of international politics. The real problem is there's a lack of love, but people don't recognise it as such. They blame others or issues or circumstances and the mind comes up with a solution as to how to deal with what's happened and who to blame. And that's just the way of the world. And you know, in the way that we move forward consciousness, and that's what we're about here, it is moving forward from that blame. Yeah, that is the move that needs to take place, where there is an, a sense of love being in the place of that. And it might sound idealistic, but that in, in reality, that is what needs to happen. Now, obviously, I'm not saying that that will solve every problem that comes up in the world. And there is definitely a place for law and for courts of justice and the protection of the individual from violence and injustice, you know, that, all that is a part of the creation of society that enables us to deal with these concepts and issues that we're able to deal with here in our rarefied 9,000 feet up atmosphere. I am saying that there is a failure in many of the events that we witness, and that failure, that non-occurrence or succession of supply, is around love, is around compassion, and is around understanding. And when people are conscious of that, then things will begin to move. When they're unconscious of it, it just leads to more problems. But coming back to our own lives, what we see as failure is really just the absence of love and our ability to be conscious of that and to put love in the place of whatever there was instead, to put love in the place of blame or anger or frustration, or disappointment. That is the practice in daily life. That is our daily life practice, to return to the breath, as Thomas Keating was talking about. And the way you do that is to become conscious of it, by not relying on your mind, but instead going into your hearts. By approaching people, situations, our lives, from this open-hearted perspective. When you do that, there is no failure. And that's such an interesting thought. You know, when you do that, when you come to life from an open-hearted and loving perspective, there is no failure. Because love is always there. That classic line from 1 Corinthians 13, love, love never fails. I think that's so interesting. Love never fails. And that is right, that's Paul again, right within this concept of the cessation 
of something. Love never fails because love is always there. And it's just that some outcomes that we meet are not those that we expected in life. Some outcomes are just not those that we expected. It is something we have to be mindful of hour by hour, minute by minute, second by second. And if we find ourselves not putting love where we should, then we remember and try not to repeat it. And of course the difficulty with all this is that life flashes by us. It goes so fast, you know. You, you just suddenly find yourself in an untidy room and blaming the kids, whatever it is. You, you suddenly find yourself there and you have little time to catch your breath, let alone remember to keep on loving. And you know, that is the purpose of practice. You do your practice every day to put in place the muscles so that love comes naturally. That's why you do your practice. You keep your attention focused on the present moment so that you always notice when your mind comes in and tries to take over. And when you practice that, when you come into your daily life, you're in a slightly different place because you've been practicing it. That, that quote from Richard Raw: being peace deepens the practice of mindfulness, both formally in regular meditation as well as throughout our day as we receive every person and every event that enters our lives through such mindfulness, we will more and more be able to understand whoever we meet or whatever we feel and so respond with compassion. Only with the peace that comes from such mindfulness will we be able to respond in a way that brings forth peace, peace for the event or person or feeling that we're dealing with at that moment. So in your day, when your mind does come in and try and take over, if you have a practice, you immediately become aware of it because you've been practicing. Like an athlete that goes over the hurdles again and again and again so that she will not hit them. So we become mindful every day so that we don't fall into the trap of being unconscious. Every time we court, every time we get caught, we notice it. Like John of the Cross's little bird, which I mentioned, it makes little difference, said John of the Cross, whether the bird is tied by a tiny thread or a huge cord. Even if it's tied by a thread, the bird will be held bound just as surely as it's tied by a cord, as long as it doesn't break the thread. And we have to break the thread of our minds. We have to catch it and break it. We have to continually break the thread of our minds so that we can open our hearts. The thread that our minds uses to control our hearts has to be cut. Remembering to live in our hearts, to be open and loving. Then, there is no failure. And there is nothing to live up to. That's it. Let's pray. So we just take a moment just to drop down into our hearts and open our hearts to the world with compassion. And our hearts do break as we see the difficulties out there in the world. We see Idlib in Syria. We see bombing and war zones. 
people living in unjust regimes, frustrated, angry, unable to do anything about it, feeling that the world has left them alone. And we open our hearts to that. We open our hearts to people dealing with issues from the weather, fires, floods, earthquake. People who feel they can do nothing. We open our hearts to them. Open our hearts to those people living on the streets. Those people who are in prison, in labour camps, unjustly detained. We open our hearts to victims of violence and oppression. Victims of crime. We open our hearts. We open our hearts to our community to those who are special to us, who are in difficulty or trouble at the moment. And let's just remember those people who may not be spoken out loud, but we know that they're suffering at the moment, and we just open our hearts to them. I think of Patricia Hill, Father Joseph Boyle, Martha Martin, Sophie Layton, And we think of Paul Mayer, who is now in hospice care. We just ask you, Lord Jesus, to bless these people. May the Holy Spirit come and find them and heal them. Amen.